All right, welcome to Therapy's Podcast. This is our introductory episode. Uh, so I want to briefly introduce the podcast and myself. Well, myself, I am the host, Guy Hernandez. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, my brief experience uh, the last almost five years has been working in the home, primarily with children and their families to um, recognize uh, some some conflict in the family and and what what interactional patterns kind of increase the stress in the family and then we look at kind of changing the way the family operates the way they interact the way they communicate and the way they spend their time together really so um the purpose of my podcast i have three primary points that i'm trying to cover is for one i want to destigmatize mental health and raise uh, raise awareness on mental health and and kind of broaden the way we think about mental health in our society and even therapy. Um, I want to provide psychoeducation. So in each episode, you'll hear some psychoeducation about the brain and about human behavior, and in hopes that um, listeners can gain insights about themselves. And thirdly, is we're going to be exploring the human experience, and through that, hopefully, people can listeners can gain connections and find ways to take care of their own mental health. Uh, one thing I briefly want to talk about too is when I'm talking about mental health, I'm not talking specifically about going to see a therapist. I, there's plenty of things we're going to cover over this this podcast that you can do to take care of your mental health that don't involve seeing a therapist because for one, seeing a therapist can be costly, it can be incredibly intimidating, and it could be finding therapists near it could be difficult be hard to find and like i said it can still feel stigmatizing so hopefully we can uh, work on that that um that stigma here by making it a more normalized process the format of the show is we our plan is to reduce two episodes per month so essentially every other week um the first couple of episodes are really going to focus on stress and then anxiety as a foundation um for one is it's kind of what I, I set up with most families when I work within their family system is how do you manage your stress? How do you manage your anxiety? Because if we're looking at making any change in the family system, stress and anxiety is probably going to increase and stress and, and unmanaged stress and anxiety is probably affecting the current problem that exists. So we're going to set up the first two episodes that way. And then thereafter, we'll have some guests that will come on and share their expertise in the field of psychology and in, in particular about what strategies they use to help out families or help out children, etc. Um, I do want to talk about the name. So the name Therapize, where that comes from is with my coworkers in the last few years, that was kind of a way that families talked about. They would use that term Therapize or that we would talk about to destigmatize the process and make it not as threatening or serious. So it's kind of a fun, became a fun, playful way to to provide therapy essentially um a couple of myths that i i often hear that i also wanted to cover before we get into episode one is uh that therapists sit there and listen to people's problems all day yes and no um that that can be a format that exists however though i, I don't focus on that as much in my personal work i really focus on looking forward and how, how do we change the system to become a more effective system that increases the happiness and decreases the stress in the home myth number two is that therapy therapists give advice 
Sometimes families will ask me directly for advice and I usually tell them I don't do that. I don't give advice. The primary part of my job is to ask the questions, the right questions to the family so that they can find their own right answers because I, I can't know the answer for the family, right? I, I can't identify something as a problem. Only they can. So if they identify something as a problem, really my role is to create the space for the change to happen. It's not to force any change to happen. And change is going to look different for each family depending on, on what they want, what they need. So we don't give advice. So today's episode, in the introduction to today's episode is stress in the brain. So what you're going to hear is you're going to hear a, about a 40-minute monologue of myself, your host, talking about briefly about the stress response in the brain, uh, why it exists, and how it impacts us socially now and uh, a couple examples of when I work with certain families of how we look about managing the stress system, this automatic system, and finding more conscious and adaptive ways to to solve our problems and, and to adapt to conflict in life because this system, it, 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 this stress response system isn't always going to go off in the most effective manner. So, so if you have any further questions after the episode, uh, you can visit my website. I'll share that at the end of the episode, and you can give feedback. And if you want any further learning resources, like I said, visit my website, therapizepodcast.com. I will post references and resources for, for the different episode and show notes. All right, so without any further ado, let's get into the first episode. This is Therapize Podcast, Stress in the Brain, Episode 1. So episode one, we're talking about everyday stress in the brain. Um, and then towards the end of this episode, we'll have a brief introduction to anxiety and look at the quick difference between stress and anxiety. But for today, we are, like I said, going to focus on stress in the brain. So first of all, I want to briefly define stress. So when we're thinking of stress, we're thinking that there's an external uh, force or ex some external stimuli that is causing pressure to our, our human physio physiological system. So say, for example, there could be a job deadline. It could be an interpersonal conflict, um, financial stress, marital stress, you name it. So this is an external force that is increasing pressure upon the human experience. So in order to really understand how we experience stress, we, we want to look at the stress response in the brain and as I'm talking about this, I, I, I want to be clear that we're talking about it on a spectrum of experience. So what I mean is we can all have varied responses, but in general, this is kind of how the stress response works. So you probably have heard of it, fight or flight response. It's a very common phrase to explain the, the stress response. Uh, what is it? Well, it is our brain's automatic physiological response to perceived threat harm or danger so for example if you were to be walking in the woods and you came across a bear this response would would initiate in order to keep us safe and we would either automatically flee you know the flight part or we would attempt to fight if no other option there's also a freeze response that's like playing possum you know playing dead to for survival which a lot of animals 
use that response as well. But for today, we're really just going to focus on the fight or flight responses and how they apply to our, our lives today and when that system maybe is becoming ineffective and how we could manage our automatic responses. But like I said, the key here is that it's an automatic response. So even when we get into the brain science, um, I don't necessarily want the point that you remember every little part of the brain that's important for for this automatic response, but that it's automatic. That That's really what I'm, I'm trying to emphasize here. So we know why it exists. Uh, we know what it is. Uh, so when? Well, when does it go off? Well, it goes off when there's a perceived threat, right? And how it works. Okay, so this is where we're going to get into the brain science part of it. How it works is, in general, our brain is constantly taking in information through our five senses. So sight, touch, smell, hearing, and tasting. It's constantly taking in information, and it's organizing that information. In, in terms of priority, um, if it's if it's something arbitrary, it maybe stores it. If it's something really important, it stores it differently. I, I'm not going to get into all of how memory works, but just understanding that we're constantly taking information. With that being said, sometimes that information that comes in, the brain's automatic response is to pay attention to it because it's a potential threat to our ourself. So. With that being said, that first part of the brain we're going to talk about is the amygdala. So the amygdala is is crucial in screening information. Screening information of, of saying, okay, this seems safe, this seems safe. Oh, wait, wait, something just happened. I don't think this is safe. I'm going to send a signal to a different part of the brain to potentially start to initiate this fight or flight response. So amygdala recognizes a potential threat tells the brain part number two, hypothalamus, that, hey, something's going on. We need to pay attention. We need to get this person doing something so that they could survive. And now the hypothalamus is going to be the control center of this fight or flight response. So essentially it will send, the hypothalamus will send another signal to, I believe, the pituitary glands or the adrenal glands. And long story short, be able to, pump adrenaline and, and I think norepinephrine into our system so that we can initiate that fighter that physical physiological fight or flight response to remain safe. So what I mean in that is that when we when we're hit with the adrenaline and and the other stress hormones, it increases our heart rate, it increases our, our breathing, so our breathing becomes more shallow and, and rapid. Uh, one of the reasons for this is so that we can we can get more oxygen to our muscles um, with increased blood pressure and with increased breathing rate so we could ha you know physically fight or physically flee if we need to okay so that's a general synopsis of how this system is working brain part number three that we're going to talk about is the prefrontal cortex this is the part of our brain that's right in the front it's right behind our forehead essentially this is where we can do our higher order thinking, our, our deep conscious, con deep conscious processing, as well as problem solving, planning, judgment. Okay, so the reason this is important is because this is very, like I said, conscious and and deliberate action coming from the prefrontal cortex. The fight or flight response comes from 
the limbic system, which is an automatic response. So they're, in a sense, kind of at opposite ends of the spectrum. One is automatic and one is more controlled and deliberate, right? Prefrontal cortex actions, controlled and deliberate, fight or flight response, automatic. Why is that important? Well, because when our brain uh, experiences the fight or flight response, our functioning, our problem solving functioning uh, in the prefrontal cortex, it starts to diminish a bit, okay? So if you've ever been really mad or upset or have experienced that in, in increased heart rate and you're maybe in a really intense argument or you were really scared and you needed to flee, you're not thinking too much. It's all, like I said, it's automatic physiological response. So the reason I bring that up is because when I'm working with families and kids, I want them to understand that because then we can start to look at what are their triggers that are setting off this fight or flight response and are they getting in patterns where this fight or flight response or I usually phrase it to families as the, the, the alarm system, the body's alarm system. Is that alarm starting to go off more than necessary, more than functional for their life? So like I said, if we think about the experience of the, it, of the fight or flight response in a spectrum, at one end, you have physically fighting. At the other end, you have physically fleeing, running away, like actually run away. But if we go a little less intense on the fight side, what it may look like is frequent, frequent arguments, yelling, um, blaming, any think of verbally attacking in any kind of way, making that person, the other person uh, in conflict uh, defensive. Okay, so that's maybe lower level fight response. Think of lower level flight response as avoidance of the problem, maybe procrastination, uh, maybe, you know, some passive uh, communication with someone that you have a conflict with. So think of think of it in those two terms, right? Flight, active disengagement. How do I get away from this problem? Fight, how am I actively engaging in this in this problem? So whatever the problem may be, are you actively engaging it? And is that becoming a dysfunctional pattern for you? Okay, so when I work with families, I don't assume that everything they experience is a problem, I, I aim to have them identify it. And once they can identify, hey, this interactional pattern that we have is a problem, we talk about the brain science and we talked about, we talk about the fight or flight response and how it's starting to potentially increase that problem or exacerbate the problem they're experiencing. So what we're briefly gonna talk about now too is when we talked about this fight or flight response being engaged we talk about it in terms of a an external threat, right? Well, threats look a little differently now, right? If we were back in times where we were in tribal communities or or living outdoors and we were much more vulnerable to to other to, to weather to uh, to animals to to whatever. But in day to day in a first world society, and you know, with a lot of the clientele that I work with. We're looking at a different type of daily threats, okay? But the theme really remains the same. The brain doesn't like vulnerability, okay? Whether that's vulnerable to being attacked by an animal or social vulnerability, which is mostly what I'm working on with families. So if you think about social vulnerability, some common themes that people will either try to avoid or, or engage in in a some type of verbal fight is the theme of reje feeling rejected, feeling disrespected, feeling incompetent, 
feeling embarrassed, ashamed, feeling guilty. These are very difficult emotions to experience in general. And some people, like I said, can ha handle them better than others. But the point is, when we, we feel these, that, that's a sense of vulnerability, generally. Our brain doesn't like that automatically. So that's what I tell families. I said, the whole reason we have this fight-or-flight response is to notice anything out of the ordinary. Because if it's out of the ordinary, then it's unpredictable. So think of it this way. Think of the phrase, fear of the unknown. Why do we fear the unknown? Well, for three main reasons. It's the outcome of the unknown is unpredictable, so we can't guarantee it's safe. The outcome is uncontrollable, so if we can't control something, then our brain interprets that as feeling unsafe. And the outcome is, well, unknown. So if it's unknown, that feels scary to our brain, right? So if we come across a dangerous animal, we don't know what's going to happen. So our brain says, hey, let's initiate this response so we can stay safe. And now I'm being a little bit redundant on the fight or flight response. But now let's think of it in terms of social interactions. Well, when, I, when I've worked with families in, in the home and we're trying to change the family system, and what I mean by that is that there's a certain way that they function that they've come to me that say is and say it's no longer working so we're looking to change how they interact by increasing some communication skills some emotional awareness etc but anyways when i explain to them hey the brain doesn't like change this is why okay so they're in their comfort zone of patterns even if it's dysfunctional we still get comfortable in the dysfunction and the reason being is because we can predict it so the brain eventually kind of gets comfortable with with things that are, are even ineffective so it's like think of a family that we they fight all the time a parent tells the child to do their chores child disobeys parent yells parent makes empty threats and then the pattern continues or or think of a couple that fights over financial stress one couple goes out and they one one partner of the couple goes out and they buy something other partner comes starts a verbal argument with that partner why did you buy this you you always do this etc etc turns into a verbal argument pattern continues right that the fight response pattern continues nothing really changes so when i'm working with a family i really emphasize the brain really doesn't like to change Reason being, the fight or flight response goes off when any can go off when when change is coming. So, when I'm working with the parent to say, "Hey, can we approach this interaction regarding telling your child to do chores or getting to school or or increasing the compliance of rules in the home? Can we change the way this interaction is?" Well, the fear is generally going to rise in that parent maybe to different degrees, depending on the confidence and the security of the parent. But why would the fear increase? Well, because they're about to change something. And what are the, the things they can't control or predict? And what's the unknown is how their child will respond. So oftentimes, the fear is that, well, what if things get worse? And that's a very fair and valid point. Same thing if we're thinking of it, inter interpersonal intimate relationship. Why change anything? Because what if it gets worse? 
if it gets worse, I don't know how that feels. I know how this feels, this level, this baseline, even if it's not working, I know how it feels and I know my brain recognizes it as safe. My brain doesn't recognize change as safe necessarily, not always, right? So the parent having to make any sort of shift in the way they interact with their child, it's scary. Because if the problem is the child, they get in an argument and they, they when the parent asks the child to do their chores, but if the parent shifts anything, what if it turns into something else? What if the child it, behaviors intensify and now it's not just an argument, but then now the child is destroying property in the home or punching holes in walls or attempts to physically fight the parent? These are issues that I've come across literally with families because it can get intense and relationships are very difficult to to change the way in which we interact with one another but like i said that's why i really emphasize this baseline of brain science going okay you have this alarm system in your head right we already went over the fight or flight response what do we know about it we know it doesn't like change okay so preparing the family we're about to embark upon change and Let's look at how you generally respond to change and getting the parent and the child more attuned to what their physiological reaction is to conflict and to change and to perceive threats. So what this is what this is doing, this process is doing is for one is is increasing the family's emotional awareness. It's helping them identify what triggers their fight or flight response. And then we look at creating a plan of when they recognize the trigger, what are they going to do differently next time, right? Because basically, remember the theme, automatic response. The stress response is automatic response. It's a reaction. Right? It's it's not a controlled response. So what we're looking at them, what we're looking at during these conflicts is to decrease the automatic response when it's not needed and increase the conscious response to have better outcomes during times of conflict in the family. So, like I said, if the current pattern is parent goes and tells child, hey, you need to do your chores or else and, and provides a false or empty threat, child disobeys and then a parent gets upset and then there's a verbal argument that ensues and then they both feel badly after and right. And so if that's the pattern, then we look at Okay, parent, how are you going to respond a little differently to this? And how are you going to remain emotionally regulated during it? Because once the parent essentially engages in the fight response, naturally the other party, the child in this example, will be on the defensive and their fight or flight response will probably be initiated and their alarm system will go off. And that's how we get into the, the verbal arguments. One person attacks in some sort of way, and other person either responds with the flight or with the attack, right? So they're going to avoid the fight, which also happens in plenty of families I work with where the child just gives the silent treatment, closes the door, doesn't say anything, or the child engages actively into, into the conflict. So we've identified now, this is your pattern. This is how it's triggered. Now this is the plan of what we're going to do. Okay, maybe parent, before you tell your child to do their chores, you have it outlined very clearly what their chores are, 
or what the system of the home is, what the consequence for not doing their chores on time is, and what the reward is for doing their, their chores as, as required by the house rules and expectations. And what we're trying to remove to is the verbal argument. So instead of the parent engaging in the verbal argument, reminding the child, hey, this is the established rules in the home, you know the rewards, you know the consequences, and try to remove that, the most conflictual piece, and that's having the parent disengage from the verbal argument, disengage from the fight. That doesn't mean avoiding it, but if they recognize that the child is then dysregulated, to use their coping strategies to remove themselves, model for this, the child that the, the argument and, and engaging in the fight or flight response is not generally adaptive in a situation like that. So parent modeling by walking away, allowing the child time to cool off, and then coming back to it and reminding the child, like I said, of the clear expectation, rules, and rewards in the, in the home as well as the consequences. Enforcing these boundaries with 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 parents, or have in empowering parents to change the the system in the home, it doesn't have to be punitive, right? It doesn't have to be. It doesn't always have to be a strong disciplinary approach where we're going to yell and and put fear into the child. That doesn't necessarily need to happen to work. But what we're looking for, right, is consistent response from the parent. We're trying to have the parent have a consistent response and predictable response for the child. Why is that important? Well, from everything we've been talking about in this last 20 minutes, it's important because and it cre creates that predictability in the child's brain. So it should hopefully begin to lessen their alarm system, their stress response, because now they know, okay, if I didn't do my chores, my parent already outlined for me that well, they're going to take away my phone for until my chores are done or they're going to shut it off or whatever it may be. But having it clear and expect it out front and having the expectation rules, words, consequences in the home be very clear, it alleviates some of the stress and anxiety in the family system. And then that, and that way we can just remove the argument, right? Because the whole point of the argument is to win this battle when, when families are getting arguments or when a child and parent again argument we realize it really most of the time doesn't go anywhere because both people are just fighting so in order to remove that we have the parent identify clear outcomes that they're looking for set up the system and then trust in the system to work okay if child you don't do your chores then this happens if you do do your chores then this happens you make everything very predictable for the child's brain it relaxes their system and then it depersonalizes the interaction so instead of your child disappointing you or not listening to you and that, that's a hit to the parent's ego, that you're losing control, the child is now understanding what the expectations are and how to succeed in that system. And if they don't, then they receive a consequence. And, and receiving consequence, is essentially, it's good, for, it's good for our development. It's good for a child's development. Why is that? And when I say consequence, I mean a, a natural response to to an action. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing. But in this regard, say the consequence is child didn't do their chores on time and they knew the expected consequence of that was that they would lose their phone until they completed their chores or whatever it is. Okay. So now they have the child is starting to develop this this understanding 
that my actions have certain consequences. Some consequences are preferred, like in terms of reward, and some are not, like in terms of getting a privilege revoked or taken away. So that's good for the development. What happens if there's no clear consequences? Well, children, as they are designed to do, are going to push the limits as far as they can. So if the parent just says, oh, you do this one more time, I'm gonna take away your phone, right? And you get in this pattern of what I said earlier, this pattern of empty threats. Well, until that child actually feels the consequence, they'll keep pushing and pushing. They'll keep pushing until the system actually does something back. They may get tired of hearing the lecture and the getting into the verbal arguments with the parent. Sometimes that's enough, but to be honest, in most of the work I've done in homes, children usually just get used to it. They just get, okay, I don't do it. Mom, worst thing that's going to happen is mom or dad's going to come in here and, and yell at me, and then and then nothing's going to change. I'll still have my phone. I'll still, my life will just go on. It'll be a temporary inconvenience, but I can handle it. So that, like I was saying, when I outline these patterns with the parent, I go, okay, well, you engaging in this fight with them, right, your alarm system going off, has it really ever been effective? Most of the time they say, no, it's not really effective because I have to keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. And it maybe only works 10% of the time. All right, so if you don't like that pattern, let's just remove it. You're not going to go in and yell at them. And then, like I said, we work on setting up the clear expectations, clear rules, clear rewards and consequences so that the child can adjust. So remembering that this stress response, it's automatic. It is not part of conscious processing in the front part of our brain. So in working with families, the primary, my primary goal is to have them understand that, hey, look, your, your brain is designed to have this response. Where in your life is this response happening? Where is it ineffective? And how can we start to adjust your response to have a more conscious response instead of an automatic reaction, right? Big difference, reaction versus response. Similar with the child, helping them increase their own understanding of their response, of what's triggering them, and look at more adaptive ways to respond instead of automatically react, which usually lends itself to either a fight or a, a flight kind of mechanism. So remember, remembering that the base of all this, though, is really is vulnerability. And what's the vulnerability of any change? is the unpredicted, uncontrolled, unknown outcome of that change. So that's that's really the scary part. And broadly, the idea of vulnerability too is lack of control, right? So we talk about fear of the unknown and all of these making changes in our life, whether it's in an interpersonal relationship or when we're trying to improve interactional patterns with a family member, a child, etc., is that we we can't control any outcomes we can't control how our child responds we can't control how our partner responds it's it's unpredictable and that's the scary part so often when we're when i'm trying to help a parent a child um, a partner in a, in a couple recognize what's the vulnerability for them that's been exposed or experienced it often comes down to feeling a little less powerful because recognizing that we can't control these things is kind of scary and at the same time recognizing that we can't control anyone else's behavior or response is 
in a sense empowering because we can start to let the control go and focus the control inward, which is understanding how how my life is, what response, how do I want to respond to the stressful events in my life? How do I want to respond to the identified problems or conflicts that exist in my life? And, and that's really where the power lies. The power lies in, in our own understanding and letting go of what we can't control, which is everything outside of us, and focusing inward and saying, what do I feel best about in terms of what I can respond, how I can consciously and control my responses? So that's usually where we focus our, or I focus my energy with the families. What's within your control? How can we, how can we find better paths to and different outcomes? Even though we can't predict those outcomes, how can we just at least try to remove the stressful events? Let's try to decrease the amount of automatic reactions you're experiencing that that the family has identified as ineffective, and change the dynamic of the family. How can we? How can we have more conscious, del deliberative, uh, enjoyable experiences? So we'll move briefly to the, we talked a lot there about the fight response, right? The engaging in arguments or, or the active engagement in, in, in a conflict that doesn't generally lead to any, any success or, or effective outcome. So now on the flight side of, the flight side of the spectrum, right? The avoidance, the procrastination, the re rationalization. So I also worked a lot of my experience with families experiencing in intense anxiety and, and, and or trauma in the family. And a common response that I, I had had to work with was the avoidance response where uh, families were avoiding the problem because the fear was that things might get worse, right? So avoiding the engagement and addressing the conflict. So how this may have looked is uh, I worked with a lot of students that experienced, uh, a lot of students that experienced intense anxiety and school refusal. And it, it, it happens in almost every school. Well, parents have a automatic, well, not necessarily automatic, but they have a certain response that they, they have towards their child not attending school or whether it's not going out in social settings or whatever the child may be avoiding socially. So the parent could have one of two responses. If they have one of many, actually. But if they're on the flight side of this automatic response, if they're experiencing automatic response, they may just avoid it. Well, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to go and ask my child to do this because I don't want to in increase the stress because they seemed already really stressed and they're not attending school understandable response right or if they have a flight reaction or a fight reaction rather and they engage in the child right that may look like busting into the child's room and yelling at them you need to get up and kind of throwing out all this uh, these potential consequences that may happen and what do we talk about earlier is we want to calmly approach these these situations and calmly describe the actual consequences that will happen so you can see how both can probably lead to ineffective support for the child. I'm not blaming the parent or anything, right? That's why I normalize it and say, your brain is supposed to react like this, right? Your child is experiencing something very difficult that you may or may not understand, and you're having a stress response to it, right? That that should happen in a sense. That that's supposed, Your brain's designed to have 
those two responses and then then we like I said then we'd look to identify okay your child you're having the fight-or-flight response to your child's avoidance that their their flight response or or even freeze response of avoiding the stressful stimuli in this case we're talking about school so we review that brain science say okay is parent is your fight-or-flight response or is your response driven by the fight-or-flight mechanism by the alarm system is it is any reaction and if they can identify yeah I'm kind of reacting I say okay two is it effective is it effective in getting your child to school more generally it isn't right generally our automatic response or automatic reaction the fight-or-flight the alarm system go off is generally not effective unless it's for a scenario that needs it right an actual perceived threat in that moment there's no there's no actual real threat there is in that okay the child's not going to school but it's not it the parent is not in imminent danger for, of harm generally right so we have for one the parent work on what their own response is right how are they going to regulate themselves in times of distress so that they, they can have a more controlled approach that's coming from the prefrontal cortex remember if our alarm system is going off it's really hard to access our prefrontal cortex which is in charge of solving problems so isn't that interesting that when a problem we we run into a problem we may experience a fight-or-flight response that begins to shut down the part of our brain that's actually responsible for solving problems it's, it's kind of contradictory but that's why it's important to recognize our triggers utilize our coping skills such as walking away and cooling down right disengaging from the immediate conflict until you can consciously engage and, and offer controlled responses so we have the parent recognize how they are reacting and then plan out for them controlled responses and then we have the child and I work with the child to say it looks like you're experiencing some of these avoidance patterns and then we can start to break down what's increasing their fear regarding this in, this interaction uh, or the lack of their of interaction and now we're kind of getting into the anxiety part but I'm just gonna stop there uh, before we get too much into anxiety because I, I just wanted to quickly recap this right stress response alarm system or brain it's an automatic physiological response to and it's supposed to essentially recognize novel stimuli right but potential threats to our system well, our systems our social systems and the way we interact are much more complex now so we it generally is going to be triggered by some sense of vulnerability vulnerability can be very complex and we talked about it being uh, we can have a lot of social vulnerabilities right feeling rejected feeling disrespected feeling powerless feeling out of control feeling um, embarrassed ashamed right we already said all of those things so we work towards each per each person in the family recognizing their triggers recognizing the if there are ineffective automatic reactions that are happening and then plan for more controlled cognitive conscious responses to the stressor so briefly I'm not going to talk too much about coping skills but for one one of them is just the emotion identification piece, right? Can you identify when you're feeling upset, right? Because that takes a conscious process. Um, 
walking away from the conflict until it, the energy settles, right? Until our alarm system is, is regulated, until our body is regulated. And then three, we, people often talk about take some deep breaths. I work with a lot of kids and that's, that's often a common statement people throw out there as, as something to do. I wholeheartedly believe in deep breathing as a self-regulatory practice. And what I mean by self-regulatory in terms of regulating our body's physiological response, right? Calming our body down, shutting down the alarm system essentially. However, I think we need to get better at explaining the reason why deep breathing even matters and how it impacts our body. So from what we talked about way earlier, this automatic alarm system response, right? It's a, or automatic reaction and, and the physiological changes that happen in our body, right? What happens? Heart rate goes up, breathing increases. It's, since it's automatic, the opposite of the automatic, right? To shut it off is to engage in a conscious process. And not only just a conscious one, but a conscious physiological one, which would be deep breathing. So if our, if our breath is, if we're kind of huffing and puffing and, and yelling and our heart rate is going, if we stop and then take a few deep breaths, and slow down the system, what does slow deep breathing do? It, well, for one, it slows our breathing, which is the opposite of what the fight or flight response does. It'll start to lessen our heart rate, it'll start to shut down that alarm system that might not be needed in that moment, right? If it, if it truly is needed, we, won't, we'll, we wanna let that alarm system go off. But if we're in a, a verbal argument with a family member that we know is a repetitive pattern that doesn't go anywhere or with your partner or with a child if we know this it just always ends with both parties feeling mad or upset and actual no resolution well hey let's let's try to catch the trigger catch when we are triggered when we're having that physiological reaction internally walk away learn how to shut down the system and like i said an easy way to do that is, is taking taking some deep breaths at least for deep breathing, I want to say this too, it, it's not going to fix the problem you're experiencing. However, it's going to allow you to access the part of your brain that is in charge of solving problems. That, so that's really the important part here. So when I'm telling kids or, or parents to take some deep breaths, well, they still need to then eventually explore some different ways of interacting with their child or, or with their partner. So once again, deep breathing, it's a, it's a conscious process, right? So that helps shut down the automatic reaction, the alarm system in our body, so that we can access that prefrontal cortex to solve problems, okay? So deep breathing doesn't solve the problems, but it helps us access that part of our brain that is designed to solve problems. So that's, that's usually the, the spiel that I, I give parents. Now we're almost, we've been talking about this topic for almost 40 minutes. I don't do this all in one session with a parent, but I do like to outline how the brain kind of generally operates so that they can go, okay, yeah, I am automatically reacting. It is ineffective, however they identified this pattern to be effective, and then explain to them, yes, it is supposed to go off in these situations. This makes sense. That way it normalizes their response. It's non-judgmental because it's like, hey, you're human. Your brain is designed to have this response. It's okay. 
but since you've identified it as the parent or the partner as ineffective, let's find ways to have a more conscious, deliberate, effective response. Um, and that's when we get into the coping skills, getting to the, instead of the reaction, I have these steps that I'm gonna take in term, when I feel myself triggered, instead of engaging with my child right then, I'm gonna walk away for five minutes, 10 minutes, take some deep breaths, think about what's really bothering me and then go reapproach the situation, etc. Okay, so we talked a lot about the fight or flight response in the body. We talked about kind of how it happens socially with us now. Uh, we will get into more and more detail in future episodes on, like say for example, just focusing on communication and, and reactive and dysfunctional communication patterns in relationships, right? We'll get more detailed. I kind of spread things around a bit, but overall the point was to acknowledge that we do have this automatic reaction. It's supposed to occur when, when change, uh, when there's a change to our environmental system or that when we're approaching something that's changes. And the reason why is because there's a sense of vulnerability. Why are we vulnerable in those situations in terms of change? Because we think of the outcome, it's uncontrollable. We can't control it, right? So it makes us feel a little scared generally or a little less powerful. Uh, we don't know what the outcome will be and it's unpredictable. Right, so then, so when we can recognize what's setting off that alarm system, when it's, when is it, when is it ineffective? We look at how can we introduce some conscious re responses to better self-regulate and to have better outcomes. Okay, so stress response, right? External potential threat. Briefly, we're going to touch on anxiety. Anxiety. That way, we can uh, help us segue into episode two, which will will focus on anxiety. So when we talked about stress, big difference, right, with stress and anxiety, stress has an external force that's putting pressure upon the human system, okay? Anxiety, it's an internal experience of fear, worry, maybe obsessive thoughts with no actual external threat, okay? So that's the huge difference. So when we think in terms of anxiety, when we're talking about there's no actual external threat, there, there might be perceived threats but generally, generally with anxiety, they're irrational. And a lot of this can be driven by um, negative thinking patterns or irrational thought patterns. And that's what we're really gonna delve into in, in next episode. We're gonna look at how our thoughts are not facts and how they can increase our experience of anxiety and how these negative thoughts can actually impact our behavior. And then we'll look at some cognitive thera therapeutic techniques that I work with families on to overcome these, uh, these essentially irrational thought patterns that perpetuate anxiety and essentially can impede someone's progress in life. All right, so stay tuned for next week. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. Um, and like I said, uh, these first few episodes are gonna be foundational and then we're gonna start bringing in guests so that they can share their expertise on the human experience. Okay, so don't forget to check out my website, therapizedpodcast.com. On there, you can go into the show notes, uh, episodes, find additional resources about things uh, that we've discussed on each one of the episodes. You can also go to the question and comments page. And if you want to hear more in depth about a particular topic, because today was pretty general, um, or get more focused on a certain theme, please let me know, provide feedback. You can also email me directly at thetherapizedpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we do have Instagram, therapized underscore podcast. Please go and follow and please leave a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to this podcast. All right. 
Thank you for listening today. This has been Therapize Podcast, your host, Guy Hernandez. Thanks for listening.